So, episode 12 of uh, Package Indexing. Um, what have we been up to? Um, I think we've uh, we've had a few more documentation tweaks on the site. Um, I think one went live yesterday to give a different default um, link for documentation. So the way that we had the docc documentation hosted was with a, a URL that both encodes the the reference for which the documentation has been generated. So is it like main branch reference or is it a tagged version uh, reference? And it also encodes the archive that you're looking at. So if a, if a package has multiple documentation archives, then which one of those is it? Um, but the problem with that is if you share one of those URLs to somebody and then you release a new version, while that URL will continue to work, you probably don't want to link to old versions of your documentation. Um, and so one little tweak that we put live yesterday was to make the link on the package page um, a generic documentation URL. And effectively, if you just add the word documentation on the end of any package URL, then it will take you to the best set of documentation you can think of, which is if there's a release version, it will take you to a release version. If not, it will take you to uh, the default branch version. Um, and it will, of course, 404 if... There is no documentation. <laughs> yeah, that too. <clears throat> so that was one little thing. There's actually, I just had an idea. If we could replace that 404 with instructions how to um, how to um, instrument the package. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> just like we do when there's no package, mm. you know, the um, yeah. thing uh, could even generate a pull request. Wow. <laughs> well, certainly it could. It could offer the. Because I don't, I don't think you should assume that a package has documentation. But maybe it could be a page encouraging people to document a package. Um, yeah, but we should still, I think, not include the link if there is no documentation. So you would have to the, the package author. Would oh have, yeah, 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 yeah. They would no, have to guess I, that 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 link didn't exist. Uh, sorry, that that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it, it would be okay, but I don't think it's. Um, no, but I mean, if you if you were to actually manually append documentation to a package, you're right. Mm -hmm. We could land on a 404, but also say, look, if you want to see something here, uh, you know, if you want to see documentation here, th this is how you would do it as okay. the as the package author, or even uh, not as the package author, but as someone who has documentation and want to help the author get it hosted. Um, you know, that's that's the SPI YAML file you would need to um, integrate, and the only thing you'd need to change is the the um, uh, target specification in the in the YAML file. Right, yeah. Just thought, and speaking of documentation, and since Matt is here, thanks Matt for your um, for your issues. So we have a couple of fixes with respect to documentation and 5.7. So 5.7 has been great for documentation because it's added the sidebar to the, um, to the docs. docs. Uh, you see the symbols, you can search. Um, it, it gives those doc pages a lot more structure and a better overview of what you can actually see you know what you can what pages there are like tutorials and you know just general um general pages so that's great um and matt's been been used matt is actually the um author with the most doxy um uh, documented packages so congratulations matt oh, <laughs> and uh, yeah and and uh, there's a couple of issues he found while while working and documenting his packages one of which was actually a general shortcoming when it comes to doxy and multi-target um instrumentation so it is actually not supported out of the box or you know properly supported at the moment to generate um multi-target documentation for a package um 
you can do it. You can copy all the documentation in one place. The problem is the sidebar, if you don't intervene, the sidebar breaks and the last target wins and takes over the sidebar. And the, you know there, there might not be anything. It might it might get broken if you do that. And we we managed to sort of fiddle around a bit and fix it so that we actually have proper sidebar support. Um, but it's it's a bit of a hack, and um, the the Doxy team is aware, and hopefully that'll get proper support. I mean, it's it's actually on the roadmap already to gain proper multi-target support. But um, we have some base um, in the interim. So yeah, that's the, that's the Doxy stuff. There's um, one more Doxy thing, actually, which is, um, I think it went live after the last episode, but it's been a couple of weeks since it went live. Uh, and that is the ability for people to, uh, package authors to tell us that their documentation is hosted elsewhere. So using right, yeah. the SBI YAML file, if you're a package author that's that has either has your own documentation set up or, or wants, to, if you want to host your documentation elsewhere, um, you can now get the same behavior in terms of that documentation link on a package page by adding a URL into the, um, the SBI YAML file. And we will look for that when we pass your package and link to your documentation if you don't want to use our hosted documentation. So that uh, came as a result of a couple of people who were very happy with their existing documentation setup. Um, but we want people to, who are browsing packages to have just as good an experience uh, when they haven't, when, when the documentation has not been generated by us. Yeah. The how to set that up and what the syntax is, we haven't. Um, documented yet, right? We'll, I, we'll have a blog post for that one. I am looking at the. I don't, I don't want uh, to uh, yeah. show the spot just to let people know. <laughs> I am looking at the blog post draft right now, uh, but uh, but you're right. The, the only place that blog post exists is on my hard disk. <laughs> right. Let's let's ship your heart. <laughs> cool. Um, just maybe a couple of other quick notes. So five seven processing has been long done. That mm -hmm. went really well. We sort of lucked into a a much nicer process and way of doing it. That won't impact. Uh, so in the past, when we caught up with a new Swift version, we sort of blocked our regular package and release processing quite a bit. So it, it led to lots of packages that had releases or new packages to have uh, question marks in their compatibility matrix for extended periods of time because our build queue was flooded by you know, new Swift version builds of old packages. So everything would be flooded by 5.7 builds. And we we managed to actually improve on that so that we would give priority to the existing processes and only fill up um, the new, the backlog builds um, if there was capacity. So that went really well. It didn't even delay the 5.7 processing really. Um, and um, I think we were through after four days or so Something like that, yeah. but yeah but you wouldn't actually notice much of it because you know new packages and releases would just be processed as they were in the past and the five seven gaps would just steadily being filled in time over the course of four days and, and new packages would always get five seven builds automatically so that that was uh, that went really well this time around and is um is a good thing to have for the future we, we do now have a slightly more complicated uh mac um setup for our build machines though we now have three different versions of Mac OS running five or six different versions of Xcode, um, five different versions of Xcode, I think. Um, so we'll be looking forward to the day when we can... So we, t we tend to keep five versions in rotation so that as we, we add, added 5.7, we also dropped, uh, was it 5.3, I think? Um, yeah. Yes, so we now, we now only test with 5.4, 
I know we're keeping four versions of Xcode. Yeah, there's a 5.4, 5.5, 5, 5.6, and 5.7. 5.4 only runs on Big Sur. 5.5 5 and 5.6 run on Monterey. And 5.7 only runs on uh, Ventura if you want all the features, which we do. So when we drop 5.8 5, 5, comes out, we'll be able to drop that Big Sur machine as well, which will be uh, a nice improvement to our complexity on the Mac uh, side. Yeah, it's it is so insane how much easier that is on Linux. Yes, it is. Because it's <laughs> literally changing a number in the Docker image label. And it's just I just wish there was something like that on the Mac and you know, hopefully with virtualization that might improve in the future and, and maybe there's some some sort of imaging Docker like process around that that would be amazing because it is just so much easier to set up. But the good news um, is we have full um, compatibility stats now for 5.7. And what would have been really smart before this call would have been to uh, run a quick query to see how many of our packages are compatible with 5.7. <laughs> <laughs> if, if only we'd had a segment on uh, take that quiz. That sort of stuff, right? <laughs> but I know that I didn't run that query, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain you didn't. No, <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll actually make a note because then we can at least briefly reselect that. Um, uh, we could pop that in a blog post, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, quick follow-up since since I just mentioned VM performance. So um, last time we talked about um, virtualizing on Monterey and how all of that has improved dramatically with the virtualization framework um, and apps like VirtualBody that makes it really easy and, and free to generate VMs and run them and operate them. Um, if if you didn't listen at the time, it was, I got surprising results building these um, SPI server projects. Actually, the fastest runtime, and the runtimes were quite consistent, so this wasn't really a fluke. The fastest runtime I got by a couple of seconds was in a VM versus my action machine. Um, it wasn't much, but at least I couldn't, if you've told me build numbers, I wouldn't be able to tell apart which one was virtualized and which one was an actual build. Um, the only caveat I'll give is that the the timing I took as reported from Xcode. Now, I don't, there's time drift in a VM to the level that, you know, that would make it appear slower. So maybe technically I should have taken wall clock time and measured it externally, but at least looking at those numbers, it was, there was no noticeable difference. Now, I speculated at the time that that might be a bit different when you run more than just a build. And that is actually true. So since then I ran our tests for our builder project, which runs a lot of tests and builds it itself triggers builds in various Xcode versions. And that was the whole point of virtualizing because then I can virtualize Monterey on Ventura and on Monterey, I can run all the Xcode versions that just talked about that we need to support in our build system. So the reason I did this is I wanted to upgrade my main machine, but still be able to run the whole test suite in a VM. And this is where you actually then see a difference, which is 25%. So in this virtualized Monterey VM, running all the builder tests, are 25% slower than, than running natively. And I guess that is, um, you know, virtualizing the hard disk because there's, there's more IO happening. And to give absolute numbers on the, on the host itself, it's 336 seconds, so five and a half minutes. And on the virtualized Monterey, it's 428 seconds, which is uh, seven minutes and eight seconds. So, so there you go. It's also, it's a difference it's also odd is what it is. <laughs> You mean odd that the that it's that faster, build, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it's effectively just negligible the overhead, uh, and it just happened to be. I guess if you ran it often enough, um, yeah. you might tease out a couple percent difference um, because you know there's no reason for it to be faster. Um, it just happened to be in that timing. 
So yeah, um, maybe one final bit of news which might be interesting for people who are running server-side projects. Um, we run our build pipeline. So for the server project, we run CI and in CI, we run the tests with TSAN enabled and TSAN is the threat sanitizer, the thread sanitizer, not the threat <laughs> sanitizer. Um, and we started transitioning to async await from event loop future um, based um, concurrency. When doing that, when we started to do that, we started seeing lots of false positives. Well, what we assumed were false positives um, in by a flag by TSAN, and we had to disable it um, around, I think, November last year when we first started moving over to async await. With 5.7, we've actually been able to re-enable TSAN, so there are no longer any TSAN warnings without any other changes. So that, that sort of proves, um, I guess, that there weren't act any actual um, um, positives there. No errors. actual errors. All false positives. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, apparently. So, so that's good news for anyone looking to transition and was sort of holding back because of, of that potentially. Uh, it seems like you can go ahead and enable that and, and be happy with async await replacing and event loop futures and, and all would be good. And it's uh, such a joy to work with um, async awake in uh, await <laughs> awake <laughs> async awake <laughs> I like it um, async await compared to uh, ELF uh, I know that it's uh, it's a much less daunting task to uh, get get to grips with with async await code. Yeah, absolutely. Every time there's this, and, and we do this piecemeal. Uh, every time I transition something over, it is such a relief, and and you know makes it so much easier to read and, and work with um, components. There have actually been components that I've held back changing because threading something through, you know, adding something in the middle of a chain of event loop futures is, uh, can be quite fiddly. And um, that, that's really, that's really bad when you're holding back a bit on changes because you don't want to touch it <laughs> because it's so, so annoying to deal with. That, that's never good. It's really, yeah. Right. I think that's the news. It is. Segment, isn't it? But I know we had another thing that we wanted to discuss before um, our package suggestions. All right. And the quiz section is back. Oh, is it? Dave. Is it really? <laughs> what? Yes, it is. Well, what did you want to talk about? <laughs> um, I, actually, <laughs> I actually can't remember what it was that we were going to discuss. But we, didn't, we, didn't we agree to discuss something on, on this earlier? We did, we did indeed. Yeah, I, I wish I could remember. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna blame being tired. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. We wanted to talk about the package regist registry. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> so um, this was actually, I, I think. Well, Tim, um, Tim is someone who who brought this up. There, there has been a um, proposal in the pipeline for quite a long time on on Swift Evolution. That is. Uh, um, specification of a package registry um, and not only that there was that swift evolution proposal which had been um, reviewed through multiple stages and um, accepted and there's also been a prototype implementation of, of a registry um, which came along with the proposal but nothing much has really happened in the meantime and um, there were some thoughts being tossed around well what's going to happen and, and how would that um, potentially work with the Swift package index. And that's maybe a point to briefly explain what's actually the difference between yeah, the index and the registry. Yeah, there is a difference, although, I mean, you, you can sort of argue it's it's sort of, you know, very closely related, but in a nutshell, the way I think of it is the index is, is a 
is a thing where you go to find package, packages to use as dependencies. So you browse what packages there are and you pick something that, that fulfills your, your, you know, your purpose and you add it as a dependency. And the registry you use to resolve dependencies during your build process in a secure way. And the, the main purpose of the registry is to make sure that the stuff you download, the build artifacts you download to actually conduct your build are shipped to you via a secure channel and are checksummed to make sure that what you download and use has the same hash um, checksum that you expect and the registry is uh, you know, sort of a delivery mechanism that is protecting against um, uh, supply chain attacks and that sort of thing. So that, I mean, obviously a, a service can provide both uh, at the same time, but there is a distinction in, in terms of you know, purpose and, and delivery. Um, between these two. The other way that I like to think about it is that there can and should be multiple registries um, and an index is a, a, an aggregate of one or more registries. Uh, that's not to say that there can't be multiple indexes, but the, the purpose of an index is to make a searchable um, version yeah. of multiple registries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the index is the place where you go to search the registry is the place you go when you already have what you need and you just need to you know put it in you know you one is the address book the other one is the actual address where you go once you, you have the addresses already um yeah so what what we did is sort of played around with the prototype a bit to understand how that would actually work in practice um so far there's only one implementation of a package registry in the swift ecosystem that uh, we are aware of and that is God, is it Frog something? Um, yeah, uh, Artifactory, isn't it? Yeah. Right, I think, yeah. But I think the company is... The company J is Frog, Frog yeah, is something. I think it's J-Frog, yeah, that sounds, that sounds familiar, yeah. But anyway, that's that's more like an enterprise-y thing, so you'd, you'd be a customer of theirs to have, have that as a registry, and I'm not sure what the um, how that would work in practice. Obviously, we didn't try that, but what we did do is spin up the prototype implementation um, to see how that would work. And the reason that is actually possible to play with now is that Swift 5.7 started shipping with with all the bits in place as a client for a registry to actually you know, look up, yeah, so add, add dependencies to your package manifest and then use it to look up against the registry. So that's a, that it's been added to the Swift Package Manager tool that you have installed on your disk. If you yeah. if you have Xcode fourteen or or, or a version of Swift seven, yeah, exactly. And just just at a very high level, the way that works is you um, configure a registry that you want to to use. Um, there's a there's a spm command um, like uh, Swift package dash registry set, and then you provide a URL. Um, and then the other thing, the other shift or change is that um, the registry is based on a new type of package identifier, which is a scope and package name identifier. And they are, I think they're period separated in the spec. Um, although I've also seen in the logs, it's sometimes a slash, but effectively you have a scope and a package name. Um, to give an example, the package I played around with was our own um, SPI manifest, which is a little package. It's not really relevant to what, what that does, but it uses YAMS as a package dependency and YAMS is the uh, YAML um, encoder decoder package by uh, JP uh, Sim, Simon? Simon, yeah. Simon. Um, 
So the package ID in terms of the package registry of that package is jpsim.yams. And that's, and that's actually what you then specify in your package manif manifest. So instead of using the URL in there and a version range, you, you say package ID colon jpsim yams and then you know the, the version range to select. Um, and, and that's all you do effectively. If everything's set up correctly and the registry knows about the package by that identifier, then you pull in the dependency from there. The way you pull in the dependency is different as well. It's not using Git to pull in the, the package. It's using um, just a HTTP. It's pulling in a zip file um, that, that um, has been tested uh, to be quite a bit faster than using Git to fetch it. Um, it, it gets that zip file, checks that the checksum is all right, um, is as expected, un unzips it, and then you know, it just gets processed with SPM as usual. And I, th this is sort of a thing that I set up and tried, tried out, um, and that worked fine. Um, so yeah, that was a little investigation, um, how that would work. Um, one nice thing that whole thing will enable, and I'll, I'll maybe come around to this again later when we talk about our packages, is these IDs have a nice side effect of uh, getting rid of URLs in as a package identifier. And the reason why that is nice is that there has been sort of a... Uh, how do you say, like, like commonly people are using Swift dash in their URL to signify it's a Swift package, you know, because they're hosting it on GitHub where you might want to see in the URL well, what sort of package am I looking at. But because of that, if you look in the sidebar in Xcode, <laughs> you just have lots of Swift dash dependencies and often stuff is truncated. And yet you have this redundant information in the URL. Now, once we actually start using registries as the base of our um, dependency resolution. Even if the package URL is Swift dash something, everything should actually probably be displayed in terms of package IDs, and that will get rid of this um, this weird redundancy and that that, that noise in in the package names. Uh, and I think that's that's actually a really nice side effect of that. It's I think it's going to be a an interesting probably couple of years while we transition uh, between URL based package uh, resolution and. Uh, registry-based resolution, because I think, obviously, first of all, there needs to be one or more registries uh, that exist, um, but then also people will need to get their packages into those registries, and and then, gradually, over time, people will need to update their package.swift files to refer to registries instead of URLs, because both will work, and a package that is in a registry will also be available via a Git repository. And so even if a package author moves their package to a registry, the consumers of that package won't necessarily update their package Swift files to reference the registry version instead of the URL version. So I think there's going to be a, a fairly slow transition into this, um, uh, probably, like I say, probably I would imagine a couple of years of, of transition. Yeah, yeah, probably. I'm, I am slightly... I could concern what what that'll mean for us because yes. we we have a unique index on the Me too. you know we have a package ID which is just simply a UID in terms of the the uh, SQL the Postgres table but there's also obviously a uh, unique index on the package URL which is currently our unique identifier to make sure we don't ingest a package twice yeah. and obviously that's normalized across package name casing and all that but we will have to take care of 
package IDs on top of that, I guess, in, in some in some way and, and make sure that that also is unique and um, one, what happens if there are conflicts there. So that, that'll be interesting uh, what, to deal with. One thing that I suggested during the proposal phase for the uh, implementation of registry, sorry, for the, not for the implementation, but for the um, evolution process during the um, proposal of the evolution pitch for registries was that a registry should need to be able to report what packages it has. And that was a very selfish request um, because <laughs> because it would really help us out if we could ask the registry, please give, a, give us a list of all of your packages. Um, that did not make it into the spec, unfortunately. And so even with registries, we're going to be dependent on people manually telling us where their package is, which is just it's a weakness of of, uh, of our site as it is at the moment and i wish i wish there was something on the horizon that could help us with that problem um uh, at the moment we use a we use a, a, a separate repository for, with a json file in it um we could continue with that process with the with registries but uh, but i wish there was something better yeah well i guess we have to do both and, and merge it somehow i suppose yes. um the, the nice thing about the list is really it's it is effectively the sole input um, which is nice in a way you know it's it's a very very physical thing i mean if if <laughs> if a json file can be a physical thing yes. but it's you know it's it's very it's very it's it's right there you know it's um, this this is this is all all we're using as input and then all the rest is is pulling you know, pulling an extra info off of these keys in there so, uh, right. uh, an interesting so, little experiment, but mm -hmm. one that will take a few years to come to fruition, I would imagine. Yeah, I would guess so. Um, yeah, right. Was there anything else you, you had regarding registries? No, I think we should go... Or shall we go to packages? Straight on to packages, yeah. Um, and the first package, let's, I'll, I'll kick it off, and the first package I want to talk about is actually a collection of packages. Um, um, it's a package that I I wasn't aware was still having um, significant work done on it, and that is uh, 18 days ago there was a 3.0 release of Kitura. Um, so oh, nice. the last release previous to that was was the beginning of 2021, so January 2021, so more than 18 months ago. Um, and uh, and given that IBM have moved on from maintaining that package, um, I was aware that that people were still involved with it. And of course, there are sites that are, that are still running on it. Um, but what I didn't realize is that was a, there was a major new version coming. And the big um, feature for that version was that uh, Swift Neo is now the default networks uh, stack. Um, so quite a major uh, uh, move for Kitura. Nice. So I thought that was worth, worth mentioning. Um, there's diversity in server-side frameworks is a good thing. Um, there's no one framework that will do everything for everybody. And so um, having alternatives and having options, I think is always going to be a good thing. Yeah, that's definitely great. I mean, there are a couple of others as well, like Smoke, mm -hmm. AWS's Smoke framework and um, Adam Fowler's Hummingbird and obviously Vapor, which we are using. But it's really great to see that there's a there's a good few that you can use. Is um, There was one called Perfect as well, was there? Oh, right, yeah. Is that still going? I think... I'm not sure about that one. I haven't heard anything about that one in, in quite a while. So that might actually be one that's sort of um, fallen by the wayside. But but all the others are, I mean, 
hummingbird is, is very recent yeah. smoke is is also recent um well fairly recent i mean it's not it's not brand new but it's um it's uh, newer than vapor i'm sure that tim um, who is listening right now is shouting at his phone telling us all the ones that we're, we're, we're missing <laughs> 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 um right Shall I shall I pop my first? Go for it. Yep. So I just wanted to mention briefly um, Point Free Co's snapshot testing framework, and I we might have mentioned that before, but the reason I actually want to bring it up is is you know going back to the thing that I mentioned earlier about the package name changes. So the change they made in their 1.10 version is changing the package name from snapshot testing to Swift dash snapshot dash testing. And that's actually what prompted me to think about this a bit more. And because and, um, I thought this is actually, ah, this is a change the wrong way around. I would much prefer if the change was, was the other way. You know, people would start dropping the Swift mm -hmm. dash from their package names. But in looking at how that would actually reflect in the package registry, I wonder if they would then be tempted to change this back again, because now I think they would end up with point free co as the scope and then dot swift dash snapshot testing as the package name which i think isn't what they would want later on but the reason i mean apart, apart from this being a great package we use it extensively in our testing it allows you to do snapshot testing of pretty much anything it can be json it can be a web response it can be an image it can be a view it's we, it's like a really really great package to um, snapshot all sorts of data. One use of it that we uh, that we that I quite like, where we use it for um, snapshotting SQL commands. So we snapshot yeah. uh, uh, the SQL that gets run, uh, and and then if it ever changes, we know instantly that something has changed. Yeah, yeah, which is which is really great. I've always wanted this because it's so easy to to um, fiddle around a bit and especially because we have some queries that are composed so we have you know like unions we we have individual queries that are then composed by an outer query that unions them together and it's very easy to, to mess up one and then the union won't work anymore and and our snapshots sort of make sure that you know you can't just inadvertently mess something up and then you know break the syntax of a query so yeah it's, it's just an all-around great package for any sort of snapshot testing you might want to to do, but really the reason I wanted to bring it up now was this change. Now this change doesn't actually affect how you import the package. That is still just importing snapshot testing. It's just the package name change sort of has some impact on your manifest, how you actually you know, use it in how you specify its use in the manifest. And, and I, I really, really hope that at some point we will get rid of all these Swift dash prefixes all over the place. And uh, I personally am always confused what I should actually use in the manifest. I mean, look, considering how often I stare at manifests with what we do, I, I can't for the life of me write a dependency clause or a package use clause. I, all, all I do is look it up. I look at another package to find out how it's done. And I, I, I really hope at some point there's a change to the format and, and how we do that because it, it, sh it shouldn't be that difficult if you want to do it, you know, text-based. Obviously you can, use I think you can use Xcode right to yeah you can use Xcode to add a package but I never really do and um, <laughs> maybe that's my problem I yes. need to be, be doing it the way I'm doing it but I, I don't know I always end up bringing up an editor and fiddling around with it and then of course it doesn't build it doesn't even pack and resolve and then I need to fiddle around until I get it right and it's, none of this is really helping. It's interesting to say that because for for an Xcode project like a iOS app or a Mac app or something like that um, because 
all that stuff is hidden away deep inside the Xcode branch. Um, I always use the Xcode uh, uh, window to do it there. But you're right, I never do it either. If it's a package.sort file, I go and copy something and, and paste it and then try and figure out what's wrong. <laughs> yeah, so that, those are my two, my two um, complaints. Let's get rid of the Swift dash and uh, let's get a better Swift manifest format. I mean, there, there is a there is a pre pitch for it, which I don't want to get into right now. But I'm I'm hopeful that there might something might change in the future. So my next one is um, a package that's been around for a little while, but just got a new uh, release two <laughs> two days ago. Um, uh, it's a it's a package called Swift S H W I F T. By, oh yeah, by George Leon, um, and it's a it's a shell scripting uh, package for Swift. So it, it enables you to write code that runs um, uh, Unix tools or you know command line tools of any flavor uh, easily from within a uh, Swift uh, application. What I quite liked about this is the way that you define variables which are uh, which map to kind of executables on. Your disk. So you could say, for the example in the readme file here, is someone saying let echo equals await executable named echo, and from that point onwards, you can just call in your Swift code echo, which is is quite a nice way to uh, keep your shell scripts in Swift readable, rather than having to constantly execute through shell out or any of the other ways that you could uh, execute one of these tools. Um, yeah. So it's I thought that was quite a nice uh, little use, and um, uh, certainly. It's, a step in between creating, you know, it's a step in between creating a command line tool and just writing something in, in Bash or ZSH or whatever. Yeah. It's really nice also. It has a pipe operator, which operates pretty much like pipe does in the shell. It I mean, does, You might yes. not like operator overloading like that, but it is actually quite nice. Um, um, if you're familiar with how that works, that should make it really uh, convenient to, to, you know, convert shell scripts over. I'm not a huge fan of operator overloading, but I actually I don't mind it in this specific case because it is echoing something that you would be very familiar with doing in a shell script. Echoing, nice one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all week. <laughs> right, tickets at the exit. <laughs> um, my second package is is a package I absolutely love. Um, I came across this uh, via Twitter. There was a link. Uh, it was presented at a talk at 360 iDev called Physical by Jeff, Jeff Biggers. Um, and this is a package which deals with units, like physical units of measurement, um, which is right up my wheelhouse. Um, and this is also a, a fantastic package to use and play around with our try in a playground um, thing. So what this does, it gives you a full range of physical units that you can tack onto numbers. So for instance, you can write, um, there's, a, there's a very nice example in the readme, you can write distance equals 10.5 point centimeters. And just tacking on the centimeters onto that, that float gives you a, a typed um, variable. Um, and then you can do computations based of your units. So for instance, you can add distances. If you've defined one in centimeters, another in feet, you can add them together, type safely, and then you can do other computations on it. For instance, if you take that sum of two distances and divide it by a time, 
you get a speed out of it. And, you know, it knows about how, how these are related, which is amazing. I, I, so I studied physics and I wish I'd had something like this at the time because it's, it's just so nice to be able to, to throw this at a machine, you know, this tedious thing and, and let it do all that stuff for you without you having to convert this manually and that sort of stuff. Um, so that's, that's really nice. You can express them. They are type safe. It also has your back when you do stuff with units that is nonsensical. So for instance, adding a speed and a time doesn't make sense in a phys you know, in physics. It's just there's no unit that represents that. So it actually represents that as not a thing, which is sort of like not a number if you do, you know, if you divide by zero. So it has that equivalent concept for if you add um, two units that aren't compatible, which is really nice. It also has a notion of a dimensional description. So for instance, you can take a force and say, well, what is that dimensional description of that thing? And it'll tell you what it is. It's a length times a distance divided by uh, time to the power of two. So if you have any number that you had in a calculation and you say dimensional description, you get like a, a condensed thing out of it that you can then sanity check, you know, does it actually line up with what I expect this to be? This is just amazing. I, I probably get carried away <laughs> talking about it. So um, one question I have is, does, is it based on the foundation measurement classes? Types? I, it, my, let me see extends the unit supported by the measurement framework. Yes, it ah, seems to be. So um, it seems to be layered on top of it. Um, so I was aware of that package before, but it's also, especially watching his talk, it's it's very obvious that this goes way beyond that. I mean, it also comes with um, baked in physical constants like the mass of the sun, the earth, you know, gravitational constant, all that sort of stuff you might need for, you know, your, your everyday calculations because why wouldn't you need the mass of the sun <laughs> right, yes. but you know it's, it's really interesting I, I, it's just an all-around great package it's sort of i guess you can think of it as a bit of a peak sort of thing that you can use in mm -hmm. in a playground to to play around with um yeah so, so it's, it's just it's interesting that the so that i've been digging into the measurement framework a little bit today actually because there's a blog post that i think i'm going to link to in tomorrow's uh, ios dev weekly uh which <laughs> the title itself is quite good it, the title is over 3,000 words on what the measurement type is and why you should be using it. <laughs> uh, so this is an incredibly detailed post on on this. And I didn't really have any sense that this uh, existed. I think it's been around um, for a little while now, actually. I think it was introduced in uh, 2016. Um, yeah. So it's it's not new at all. Um, but uh, maybe I had heard of it. But, but certainly reading this post today made me think, oh, that's very interesting. And so it's... Uh, it's uh, serendipitous that you also mentioned this package tonight. Yeah, yeah. Measurements framework has been around for a while. I, I saw it come up at the time. This package, physical, has has been in development for four months, so that's that's quite recent. Um, and and it really seems to be built on top of it. Actually, built on it says it right there in the first paragraph. Built on top of Apple's Foundations measurement framework. So there you go. Um, you will be using that under the hood, just in a I, I suppose nicer way. And that's great because to you know the, the the amount of effort that I'm sure Apple will have put in to making sure that something like that is is correct is more than a package author a solo package author could do. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And so to build convenience on top of something that should be really solid and and reliable uh, is is a great way to approach this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, there you go. Physical by Jeff Biggest, fantastic package. Great. All right. Well, I think we should probably uh, wrap it up there. We're at time.
Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening and for um, uh, spreading the word about this. If you do, if you did enjoy it, then please do um, uh, you know pop a tweet out. With we'll we'll uh, include the link to the recording on our Twitter. Uh, but we'd love it if you told other people that you enjoy listening to this, so uh, that maybe some more people come in the future. Uh, but thank you all for listening, and um, we will be back on our regular schedule now of every two weeks. So the next one will be uh, not next Thursday, but the week, uh, but the Thursday afterwards. Yeah, thanks everyone, and see you in two weeks. All right, bye bye. Bye bye.